Isaac has been the guy that we've been looking forward to for a long time. We've been waiting for that son to be born. We had the false start with Ishmael, but finally Isaac was born, and Abraham has passed away at this point in the story. He has been gathered to his fathers, as it says. And chapter 26, oddly enough, is the only all-Isaac chapter in the Bible. We had from chapter 12 through chapter 25 about Abraham, and now we have chapter 26 about Isaac, and then 27 forward is going to be about Jacob. And then we're going to start talking about Joseph, and then we're going to be in the book of Exodus. So there's not a whole lot in there about Isaac. That doesn't say anything about him. It just says that the Lord thought the Jacob and Esau story was a bit more interesting, maybe. So we'll be getting to that next time. But we're going to see in chapter 26, this passage bears striking similarity to something that happened in Abraham's life twice. And we're also going to see that Isaac is the guy now. Isaac is the one carrying the torch. He's the one who's got the baton. Abraham has run his race, and it's Isaac's turn now. And we're going to see how Isaac handles that. One of my favorite characters in literature is King Theoden from The Lord of the Rings. And he is the king of the lesser kingdom. He's the king of the smaller, weaker, less technologically advanced kingdom. And as the war, if you know the story against evil, begins, he's caught ignoring it. He's not paying attention. He's not getting his people ready. All of the greatest warriors and best people have left. And when he finally wakes up, he barely has enough time to get his people to escape to a fortress where they survive, but they barely win this battle by the skin of their teeth. And his character is one who sees himself as a, as a colossal disappointment. He has no children left to carry on his name. He looks back on the great storied history of his kingdom, and then he sees himself. And there's a quote that he says in the book. He says, a lesser son of greater sires am I. Saying, I'm a lesser son of greater sire, a greater father. He says, I'm the runt of the litter. I'm a nobody. There were great kings that were my fathers and grandfathers, and then there's me. Maybe you know what that feels like. You know what that feels like? To look back on all the great examples you've had growing up, maybe your mom or your dad or an aunt or uncle or grandmother, and then you look at you and you say, how did I get into this family? I'm the runt of the spiritual litter. There's a lot of difficulty that comes to that. And this was Isaac. Isaac was Abraham's son, the son of the promise. He would have gone around the promised land and everybody that knew Abraham would say, I knew your father. You must be the famous son of promise, Isaac. Well, that's a lot to carry on your shoulders, isn't it? And Isaac, I would imagine, had a hard time living up to that. But what we're going to see today, as Isaac had to learn, God is not really so concerned to compare you to other people. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. The Lord wants to do something new and wonderful with you. That's what God is interested in. Not saying, why can't you be more like him? But I've got something in mind for you. So why don't we read this story? That's going to be our through line as we walk through that sometimes we feel that way, like lesser sons of greater sires. And the Lord is going to speak to us tonight and say, nah, <laughs> not with me, you're not. So we'll read these first five verses now. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So a famine comes to the promised land, and Isaac goes to Gerar. Now this might sound familiar to you, because this happened to Abraham twice. And in chapter 20, I went into this, so I'm only going to mention it briefly. Some critics of the Bible want to say that these are duplicate stories, that it really only happened one time, and the fact that we see three versions of this story only shows us that it was copied and pasted and not inspired. 
But as we see right there in verse 1, the writer of this story was aware of the similarity between the two, and he goes out of his way to let us know this was a different time. Do you see that? There was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And now if you are bent on proving that the Bible is not reliable, you're going to say, well, that's just what they would say. But the fact remains that the writer of the book of Genesis was aware that we had seen this kind of thing twice already, and maybe that's why he wanted to clarify. So we'll move on. We don't see Jacob and Esau in this story. And the second half of the last chapter was the birth of Jacob and Esau, and then also the selling of Esau's birthright to Jacob. Now, all I can say is that Jacob and Esau are not in this story. There could be any number of explanations why. It could be that this is not chronological. Maybe they wanted to talk about the birth of Jacob and Esau, and then they thought that the selling of the birthright was just too important to leave till later. Or it could be that they were there the whole time, we just don't read about them. So they're not there, and we don't know why, and that's about all there is to say about that. But we see here in verse 2, he goes to the Gerar, which is the, the city of the Philistines where Abimelech is king, and the Lord appears to Isaac for the first time. We saw the Lord speak to Rebekah in the last chapter, but now the Lord appears to Isaac himself. And he tells him to stay out of Egypt. We see this several times in the book of Genesis, that when there was a famine in the land, people would go to Egypt. And that was because Egypt had the big Nile River running through it. And every year, no matter what, the Nile would flood, it would irrigate the land, and it would blossom. And so if you needed food, you went to Egypt. And Isaac was a nomad, right? They didn't build cities, they lived in tents. So all the other nomads, all the other Bedouin tribes, they're going to Egypt. And the Lord says, no, no, I want you to stay here where the famine is. I want you to stay here in the land of Gerar. And not only that, the Lord reaffirms the promise to Isaac. God had told Abraham before that Isaac is going to receive all the blessing that I'm giving you. But now God tells Isaac himself. And you can see he uses the same language. He says, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Remember when God sent Abraham outside and said, go number the stars and you can count them. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is something God said to Abraham multiple times. And verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice. Abraham did the right thing. He carried the torch, he kept the fire burning, and he's passed it on to you. And the Lord is going to do this throughout the Bible. We're going to see, as we get to the book of Exodus, that Moses will say, I, am, I have come in the name of the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But so far, we've only got through Abraham. So right now, he's the God of your father, Abraham. Jacob will hear, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and then it will be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord likes to hold up the memory of godly men and women to us as an example. The kings in the book of Kings and Chronicles will hear many times how they compared to David. That he was a great king, but he wasn't quite as great as David. Or didn't quite live up to Solomon. Sometimes the Lord does this with bad examples. He'll use Ahab as a negative example. You, you were wicked. In fact, you were more wicked than Ahab was. The Lord wants us to look to the memory of godly men and women as an example. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, after running through Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, right? Story after story of all these people who had faith. The next verse says, Therefore, looking back at all those great people, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Saying, look at all these people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those other names that he gives us. Don't you want to be just like them? Shouldn't we live up to their example? That's a great thing. And there are other examples that we see. We, we consider Athanasius. Athanasius, who at one time in history was the only Orthodox bishop left in the church. Everybody else had been forced by the emperor to deny the deity of Christ. And Athanasius fled to the desert. He said, you ain't getting me. And he brought it all back. The Lord used him in a mighty way. Or Martin Luther, the one who stood against the Pope and stood against all the armed powers of Europe. And he said, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith and sparked a revolution that we're still feeling to this day. Or George Whitfield and John Wesley, who preached the gospel to a Christian nation. 
that thought they were fine, but none of them had been born again. And they went around teaching the message of the new birth and insisting on ridiculous things like pastors should have to be converted. <laughs> Writing new songs, bringing revival to America and to England. You look at Chuck Smith, the pastor and the founder of the First Calvary Chapel, who were used mightily of God in the Jesus movement. Guys like Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in England. They thought he was crazy until he died, and then they, oh, they loved him so much. Billy Graham, the evangelist. That last one there is a personal favorite. Leonard Ravenhill wrote a book called Why Revival Tarries, and his sermons will set you on fire one way or another. You listen to them. I look at guys like that, guys like C.S. Lewis, guys like Jim Cimbala, and you think to yourself, that's so great. I want to be just like them, but maybe you think to yourself, that's a lot to live up to. In my own life, I've got a godly father and a godly grandfather that turned our family around from the dregs and the bottom of the spiritual barrel to now we're all doing ministry together. They compel us forward. We're made better by their lives. We look at them and we say, no, I want to be like them. If he could do it, I could do it. If she could do it, I could do it. Isaac had the example of Abraham and the Lord told him, live up to that. And that's what Isaac was told to do. You've got the example of your father before you. Now go do it. Every couple generations, folks say things like, it's time for us to get rid of all these old examples and start over. They were no good anyway, which is a foolish thing to do. Because the Lord says, even with Abraham and all his problems and David and all his sins, they got one thing right and they had faith in me. And that's what you imitate. We would hope that the generations get better over time, wouldn't we? We say, hey, they were 98% great, but we don't want that last 2%. Now we can just focus on that, and we can see the church be sanctified over time. So he says, follow the example of your father, and I'll be with you. Getting into verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, here we go again, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. We'll explain that in a moment. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Well, familiar story. Like his father, Isaac sojourned in Gerar. The word for sojourn is gur in Hebrew. It's a related word to the city of Gerar. So you could call it sojourner city. He sojourned in Sojourner City. And this was a Philistine city-state. The Philistines, we believe, were descendants of what Genesis 10 called the Kaftarim, who lived on the island of Crete. So these would have had some sort of Greek, Greco-Roman kind of heritage and culture. We can see that in some of the gods they worshipped and, and the way they ran their government, right on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. And this is where Isaac went. His father Abraham had gone there as well, too. But like his father, he lied about his wife. This is the third time we've seen this story in the book of Genesis. First time it happened in Genesis 12. Abram went to Egypt, and he was afraid. And remember, she was taken into Pharaoh's house and until the Lord, uh, I believe, sent Pharaoh a dream. He was like, no, 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 don't you touch that woman. And so they were kicked out of Egypt. And then in Genesis chapter 20, same thing happened, except this time the guy was struck with a sickness and all the women were struck with barrenness in the Philistine city. And then in 26, the same thing in the same place. This is the first time we see Isaac deceiving anybody. And deception is going to be the bane of Isaac's existence. His kids are going to be deceptive. His wife is going to be deceptive. And it's going to take a while for that to work its way out of the line of Isaac. 
And then just like his father, he's lying, says she's my sister. Now at least Abraham, remember, Sarah was his half-sister. Rebecca is just his cousin, so he's really lying this time. And it gets caught, it says, laughing with his wife. Isaac's name, remember, was Yitzchak. And we see that he was laughing. The Hebrew word there is tzachak, with his wife. Now, what does this mean? The word tzachak can mean to laugh, to jest, or to romp. So Isaac was Isaacing with his wife. You can see the play on words there. We see it used several times. It gives us a sense of the, the range here. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 9, remember, Sarah saw Ishmael tzachak, laughing or mocking or jesting or maybe even something worse with baby Isaac when he was weaned. In Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife will accuse Joseph of coming to tzachak, to laugh, to jest, but also maybe something more. And in Exodus 32, before the golden calf, it describes their sexual immorality by saying they rose up to play, tzachak. So, this is laughter, but it's used euphemistically in this to say what was going on. So, Abimelech looks out, and, and he's not sharing a joke with his wife, you understand. That they are, the word in some of the older translations is to romp or to play with his wife. This is actually very similar to the English word that we use for play. The idea is they were not engaged in the marriage act, but they were getting there. And Abimelech saw that. You're doing something with this woman that you would never do with your sister. He says, oh, hold on a minute. That ain't your sister. And he calls him in and he says, behold, she's your wife. He says, no, no, she's my sister. And he says, I saw you laughing. And he gets a rebuke from Abimelech. Now, this is a different Abimelech. Remember, the name Abimelech means my father is king. So it was a royal name, just like there were a thousand kings in England named Edward and Henry. And there were like 17 Louis in France. So Abimelech is a different guy. It's like 75 years later. He gets a rebuke from a Philistine. Isn't that ironic? And even though he begins to prosper in the land, by the way, this is the first time we see anybody in the family of Abraham raising crops. They've been herdsmen up to this point, but now it seems that Isaac is diversifying the family fortune. And the Philistines drive him away because he's getting so rich and he's getting so powerful. They're like, this guy is kind of a problem. It's what's going to happen later when the Israelites come to Egypt and they begin to multiply and become wealthy. And Pharaoh says, we've got to do something about these people because if they decide to go to war, we're not going to win. And so they said, you need to leave. They, they start filling up his wells with mud. And Abimelech, maybe when Isaac came to complain, he says, actually, you know what, Isaac, you should leave. Probably be best for you to get out of here. Not exactly the way Isaac would have expected this to go, I bet. Maybe he thought he was greater than his father. I'll never do what my dad did. You ever say that? I'll never do the things my dad did. And then there you go. I'll never say that to my kids. And then you realize, actually, maybe this would be exactly what I need to say to my kids. I'll never talk that way. I'll never be lazy like that. I'll never dress like that. And then a few years later, there you are. Even when we have good examples, I'll say even when we have especially have good examples in front of us, when we begin to grow up, we get prideful. And we start to chafe against that a little bit. And we get arrogant and we're like, yeah, that's how he did it, but I'm better than that. I would never do it that way. That's so old-fashioned. That's so lame. That's so weak. I would never fall for the same thing. Let me give you a personal example of me acting like a little punk when I was growing up. When I went to my freshman year in high school, I started going to a high school called Liberty Christian Academy, which was the high school of Liberty University, which, of course, was founded by Jerry Falwell. And I had grown up in Calvary Chapel. And, you know, in Lynchburg, Thomas Road Baptist Church, Jerry Falwell was the pastor there. They have a big presence in the city because they kind of put us on the map and everybody goes there. If you go somewhere, you're going to go there. And so as part of a small church, I had a little high school chip on my shoulder about these people. I'm going to go to this school and they're going to try to teach me a Bible class. They don't even believe in the gifts of the Spirit. You're going to try and teach me something. They probably don't even teach verse by verse. So who's, what makes them think they're any better than us? And they sing those old hymns. Don't they know there's no power in those old hymns? And I was a, I had long hair in eighth grade, and I was learning how to play rock and roll guitar, and they made me cut my hair. And 
So I, I walk in with this weird little swagger into this private school. And I especially had a weird problem with Jerry Falwell. Because I thought, he's not my pastor. Everybody around there is like, oh, he's so great. He's been so wonderful. Oh, Pastor Jerry. And I used to, they used to just call him Jerry. And so I'd be in this class, and like maybe three of us didn't go to that church. And so they'd just say Jerry. And I knew exactly who they were talking about, but I'd go, Jerry who? Jerry Falwell. I'm like, oh, he's the pastor, isn't he? Isn't that that guy next door? I was a punk. And I remember one time I was sitting, I was playing on the worship team, and I think this was my sophomore year, and sitting on the stage and for chapel, and we're playing, and, and out comes Jerry Falwell. And he comes, and he's standing in front of one of the elders' chairs on the stage, which we didn't do at my church, so I thought it was kind of weird. I'm just sitting there full of myself. This guy, look at this guy. He's, he's going to get up. He's pro- What's he going to teach? He's going to talk about forgiveness and love. And like, give, me, give us the sound doctrine of the scripture, man. And I was a little stinker. And I thought I was so spiritual. And of course, later on, the Lord showed me. And as I stayed there for a long time, went to the college and everything else, that was a great man. That was a godly man. That man loved Jesus. That man led countless people to Jesus Christ. And I'm sitting there going to his school and I'm going to sit there and think that I'm better than him, scoffing at him, thinking myself above him. Foolishness. I had the opportunity to learn from that guy. I had the opportunity to maybe even meet and speak to and pray with and talk to that man. I never took advantage of it because I was better, too good for him. Foolishness. Sort of like in 1 Kings chapter 12, you have Rehoboam. Rehoboam's dad was Solomon. Now David was the warrior king, but Solomon was the one that got to reign over the golden age. Solomon was the rich one. People sent tribute to Solomon everywhere. Israel reached its greatest size and peak during the reign of Solomon. And here comes Prince Rehoboam, the next king. And the first thing that comes when he becomes king is there's a contingent of the people saying, look, we built all these great things. We built the temple. We built the palace. That's great. But there was a lot of conscripted labor, and the taxes were really high. Would you please lower the taxes? Not much has changed, has it? And then uh, all the old advisors come to young Rehoboam and they said, listen, if you want these people to love you, lower their taxes and send all the conscripted workers home and they'll love you for it. He says, okay, it's a good idea. But then it says he goes to his buddies. He goes to the young men and they say, you can't do that. You can't let them come in and push you around. You go out there and you tell them, I'm going to raise the taxes and I'm going to have there be more conscripted labor. You're going to fear me. He says, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say that my father, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. You think he's tough? Wait till you get a load of me. And so in 1 Kings 12, 13 and 14, the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old man had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. I've heard a lot of inaugural addresses over the years. That's got to be one of the worst. Remember, the next time you hear one you don't like so much, it could have been that. Does y'all thought things were bad now? Wait till I get a hold of things. He was trying to prove how tough he was and how big and strong he was. And I'm better than that old goat. And here I am. And we're going to do great things. And what happened? You know the story? The kingdom split in two. Ten of the tribes said, well, then what do we need you for? We're out of here. They went and formed their own people. And God says, I'll give you two tribes, but don't go and chase those ten down. I took them away from you. And all the nations that were sending tribute to him, they all rebelled and broke away. And Rehoboam was left with just a little stump of the empire that his father had. Often when we first try to step up to the plate after the torch has been handed to us, we're cocky. And we collapse when we realize that we're not there yet. You see it every year. There's some first-round draft pick quarterback that gets to start in the big game. And in all the interviews and all the commercials, he's been swaggering around like he's something. And he gets out there and throws six interceptions in the first half. Now, maybe he'll grow into who he could be. But there's a deflating process that happens. Maybe that's what Isaac was feeling. He's maybe thinking, well, great. I'm just like my dad in all the wrong ways. I sin like my dad, I lie like my dad, and now I'm worse than my dad because I can't even stay in the land. They're filling up the wells and there's nothing I can do about it. 
All of his failures and none of his faith. We could spiritualize this a little bit. Every well, every spring of his father was stopped up. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham had made a, a covenant with the city of Gerar that these wells are mine. Do you remember that? And they brought out the, the seven and they made the covenant there. So Isaac had legal rights to these things and they were being filled up. The blessings that should have been his, he was not able to access because these people were getting in his face and pushing him around. We can feel that way, that there's no way we can live up to who's gone before, personally, or even as a church or as a generation. We look back on the revivals that have gone before. How are we going to live up to that? We love to do this with the early church, don't we? And I've done it too. We hold up the example of the early church, and then we think, what's wrong with us? Why can't we do that? We try it, and then it just falls flat. A lesser son of greater sires am I. We've got their name, we've got their shortcomings, and that's about it. So let's read verse 17 now. Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over that one. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So he goes to, it says, the valley of Gerar, the word is Nahal. It actually should be translated Wadi. Now, we don't have Wadis in America. A Wadi is a valley like this one in the picture here. This is not the same one in the story, but this is an example of what one looks like. It's a dry valley during the dry season, and then when the rain comes, it fills up with water. So this is the kind of thing maybe you've seen on National Geographic or something where there'll be those plains in the savanna that fill up with water, and all the animals come to the watering hole, and then the water dries up, and off they go. That's a Wadi. So valley, wadi, that's what it is. So he goes there because if you're looking for water and you're having trouble with wells, this is not a bad place to be because water runs there every rainy season. And Isaac begins to dig up his dad's old wells, and in one of them it says he found spring water. Literally in Hebrew there, that is living water. So this is not just water that's in the ground that's coming up. This is water that is a continuous flow. It'll always be springing up. Very rare thing. But then the Philistines find out, and they start to fight with him. The first well was called Esek, which means contention. So it would have been called Be'er Esek. Be'er in Hebrew, it's not beer, it's Be'er, and it means well. Be'er Esek, the well of contention. Or Be'er Sitna, the second one. Happened again, the well of enmity. And then finally they get to a place called Be'er Rehobot, which means well of open spaces. And we think that the well of open spaces is a place called Ruheva in this area. And we have a picture for you right there of what that looks like. That would be 18 miles from Beersheba, which is where they lived. So Isaac is kicked out of the land, has a big disappointment in his life. He does not live up to what his dad had done, except in all the wrong ways. And so what does he do? He begins to try to dig up the old wells that his father had dug. Going back to the old ways. All right, try it my way. Let's try it their way. And that can be a great thing because we can accumulate gunk when we're doing life and when we're doing ministry. Our own gunk, our own nation's gunk, our own culture's gunk, our own time period's gunk. This is why it's so great to go back and read some of those old books from a long time ago, because if they're solid Christian books that have lasted this long, there's probably something timeless about them. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord told the church, Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Or like, you were doing fine. Go back and do more of that. Or I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Isaac's doing a wise thing. He says, all right, well, we're looking for wells. I know dad had some around here. Let's go dig them up again. He's returning to what his godly father had done. It's a good thing to do. I encourage you to do that. Go back and look the way it was done before and do some of that. But here's the deal. Isaac found out it was not going to work for him like it had worked for Abraham. 
the circumstance was not going to be the same. I'll just dig up dad's old well and everything will be fine. Well, he dug up the well and here comes the enemy to drive him away from it. Sometimes going back and doing it the old way is not going to work just like we hoped because doing it the old way is not enough. It's not enough just to go back and rehash what's been done before. Let me give you a profound example. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the children of Israel are fighting against the Philistines, ironically enough, and they lose. They lose the battle. And they say, what are we going to do? We're supposed to be God's invincible nation. And they say, oh, I remember now. We're supposed to have the Ark of the Covenant. So they send to Eli and they say, send us the Ark of the Covenant. And here comes Hophni and Phinehas, the rotten children of Eli, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And it says, the people cheered so loud, the earth shook. And the Philistines go, what is happening over there? And they said, well, they've got the Ark of the Covenant. It's where their God is supposed to live. And they say, they've got a God in the camp? They said, well, we better get over there and start this fight right now. And they surprise attacked them and wiped out the Israelites and stole the Ark of the Covenant. That is not how they expected that to go. I wonder if anybody's faith was shook a little bit. Wait a minute, Lord. We did what we're supposed to do. We took the Ark of the Covenant out. We, we made, made a profound demonstration of faith and we still lost. Following after a great man or woman can be a miserable business when you feel like you're doing it just the way they did it, but you've got more pain and fewer victories than they did. You ever feel that way? Be honest with yourself. I know how my mama did it, and I'm doing it the way she did it, and it's not working for me like it worked for her. I'm doing it the way they did it in the Jesus movement. We're playing the same songs. We've got the same teaching, but it's just not working for us. And some churches can spend their whole life chasing after that old feeling that they had. And doing the same exact things. We become superstitious, like a baseball team. You know, if you were sitting in seat A14 and we won, stay in that seat so that way we'll win again. And I was wearing that, my lucky blue jacket. And that's what church comes like. I remember one time I was at a youth camp. And it was one of the first times the Lord really met me in a worship service. And I wrote down the set list of all the songs that they played. I'm like, that, that was astounding. It's the way it all flowed. It was so perfect. I found it later. And you know what? There was no magic in that set list. I played it, and the bottom of my heart didn't drop out again. Well, what's wrong? I'm playing the exact same songs we played back then. Because the problem is not with the wells. It's not that there was anything wrong with the wells. Nothing wrong with that set list. Nothing wrong with doing it the way it's been done or going back and finding the, the old ways it's been done. Nothing wrong with bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the battle. It's a good thing to do. The problem is that it's a different battle. It's a different situation. It's a different fight. When the Ark of the Covenant was brought before Joshua, God had told them, take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And they were saying, let's see, what's the last thing that God did? And they, they said, we'll go back to that. It was a different battle. It was a different fight. There were different issues. It was a different enemy. Same thing for us. Your life, you can compare it to your father or your mother or your pastor or a generation that's gone before, it's a different time now. This is not the same generation as the Great Awakening, or the Jesus Movement, or Azusa Street, or whatever revival you care to hang your hat on. It's a different time, and we are different people. That's the way they did it. Yes, but God didn't bless them because they did that. God didn't bless Abraham because he had that exact well. Sometimes the Philistines come in and they claim the legacy of your forefathers. You ever seen that happen? That's what Martin Luther had to deal with. He wasn't rebelling against a pagan king. He was revolting against the church. The enemy was in the church. The enemy were the priests. The enemy was the pope and the sacraments and the theology. And that's what he had to rebel against and get it back to what God had done. Sometimes you look at a denomination that was founded by a great man, a great man of God, and you look and you say, what happened? Maybe it all started great, but where did we go? You look at, for example, the way the Salvation Army started. Those boys were crazy. They wore uniforms and marched in ranks in the street. And they had to wear two coats when they went to their meetings. They wore one that was for the street and one for inside. Because when they wore the one outside, people would throw eggs at them and rotten fruit and dead cats and empty the chamber pots on them as they went down the street. Because they hated them. Who hates the Salvation Army now? Santa Claus ringing a bell on the side of the street. And I, I got nothing to say against them. I'm just saying, that's not an evangelistic organization anymore. Not the way it was. At least that's not their reputation. 
countless denominations. They all started great. They all started with a move of God. But sometimes the enemy gets in and the Philistines take over. And you say, well, I want to do it the way they did it, but I can't because the enemy's in the way. And you know, that's what the enemy is. The devil is a harasser, isn't he? You ever just feel harassed by Satan? He's not even doing anything profound. He's just bugging you. God had told him to stay, so Satan's trying to get him out. For no other reason than he didn't want him to, have to obey God. He wanted him to flee. The enemy will harass you. He'll bug you. He'll drive you out of Thessalonica to Berea, and that won't be enough for him. He'll chase you from Berea down to Athens, like Paul. Paul's got to be like, what is these guys' problem? Because Satan is a harasser, and he'll keep you from doing what the Lord wants you to do. So what, what is Isaac going to do now? Well, he finally gets one where he has some open space. It's to keep going, to keep trying, to keep digging the ancient wells, to keep looking and seeing what can be used, but there's something more to it. And we're going to see that right now in verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Verse 25 is the key to this whole passage. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug, I might add, another well. He goes back to Beersheba. Isaac had lived there at least since the time when Abraham bound him on top of the mountain. They had gone back to Beersheba. He had been living in Be'er Lahai Roy, which was the, the well where Hagar had encountered the Lord. So he's kind of going home, going back to his roots, you might say. And in verse 24, the Lord appears to him again and says, Fear not. The Lord is with him. That's what God says, is I'm with you. And Isaac here builds his first and only altar we see him building in Scripture. But then again, we don't have very much Scripture about Isaac, so don't hold that against him. He's building an altar, just like his dad used to do. What made the difference for Isaac is the same thing that makes a difference for you and me, regardless of if you're digging the ancient wells or you've got to dig a new one. God is with us. And what does Romans 8.31 say? If God is for us, then who can be what? Against us. Why was it not working for Isaac? I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm not doing anything wrong. I lied, but I, I, I moved past that. I thought. So what's the big deal? Because God was doing something new with Isaac. You can't do it the way it was done before because God wants to do something new with you. Mark 2, 21 through 22, Jesus said, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. When Jesus came, everybody expected something normal. They wanted extraordinary things out of Jesus, but they wanted it within the realm of what they thought, what they already knew. And Jesus showed up and he says, I'm not interested in that. He starts preaching. He starts saying, repent. He starts dunking people under the water for the forgiveness of their sins. He starts healing people. He starts touching lepers. He starts gathering a following of tax collectors and prostitutes. And the religious people couldn't believe it. And Jesus said, you're not going to be able to hang, man, if this is going to be a problem for you. New wine it goes in new wineskins. Because what do new wineskins do? They expand. They stretch. You're an old, brittle wineskin. You've stretched as much as you're going to stretch, and God wants to do something new. It's going to break you and spill the wine all over the place. Jesus was doing something new. Jesus was flipping tables over in the temple. That's not something anybody expected. Jesus was preaching love and mercy. He was proclaiming forgiveness to centurions and tax collectors. They wanted Jesus to drive those people away and execute them, like Judas Maccabeus, the hammer who had killed those guys when they tried to make us serve their gods. Jesus shows up and says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. It's new wine, and they couldn't handle it. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out. They began to speak in new tongues. And what did they say to those guys? They're full of what? New wine. Yeah, they were right, weren't they? But it wasn't the new wine they were thinking about. God was doing something new. And the old shell had to break off. 
And the cool part, it was right in line with everything God had done before, but the tradition and the method and the we've always done it this way had to fall off. Every generation, God's going to do a new thing. This is a new generation. The millennials are not the baby boomers. And we've, we've heard that so many thousands of times. As a card-carrying millennial, and that card is my driver's license, <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. You, you can't share the gospel the same way. You can't have the churches be just the same way. You can't write the same kinds of books. Is that because there's anything wrong with the old ones? No. That's because it's a different fight. It's the same message, but it's got to come differently. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. But it was so radically different in the way that he presented it. Because it's different. You wouldn't go to Africa and do it the same way you do it here. The same thing is happening now in this whole generation. It's got to be different in all the proper ways. Somebody wants to come and say, that's why we can't talk about the blood of Jesus anymore. You, you can move right along. That's the only thing that matters. But here's what you've got to understand. Isaac has made his way out of Gerar with all that money and all that stuff, but he still doesn't have a single well to his name. He has no water. When you've got a lot of people, when you've got a lot of people in your household and a lot of animals, water is kind of important, isn't it? How are you going to take care of all those people? Well, we're going back to Beersheba. Well, hopefully we can find one here. When we step out into something new that God's got for us, it's usually going to be small. And that's the thing that trips us up sometimes. The Lord's got something new for you. You step out, and it's small. Look at this, Lord. It's nothing. But the Lord told us in Zechariah 4.10 not to despise the day of small things. Here's a story for you. In the book of Ezra, this is after the exile, after Babylon had carried away all the people and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. They come back. The city's in ruins. The temple's been destroyed. They lay the foundation of the temple, and they have a big party. And all the young folks who had never seen the old temple says we're celebrating and shouting with a loud voice. But all the old-timers that had seen the old temple, they started to weep. I don't know how you can tell it's going to be bad just by looking at the foundation, but apparently it was that bad. And it says their, their voice was so loud that from a distance you couldn't tell whether they were cheering or weeping because both was happening. That's a, that's a pathetic thing, isn't it? We've come back to build the temple, and then you build it, and all the old folks that saw the old one are like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, the Lord sent the prophet Haggai to speak to those people in Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. Yet now be strong. The Lord's like, Let, let's be real. It's not very good. But be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, O you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I'll shake all nations. The treasures of all nations shall come in, and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Hear this now, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. They're staring at this thing. It's not even straight. It's tiny. How are we going to... Have you seen the old one? It looks nothing like this. They're grumbling and they're muttering and all the joy that the people had is starting to get poisoned because Grandpa's complaining about how it's no good and God can't possibly accept it. The old was better. It's good, but it's not like the old days. The Lord says the latter glory is going to be greater than the former. You think, how is that possible? It's smaller. It's uglier. It's surrounded by rubble. It's got fewer people. We have no tribute from other nations. We're still under the thumb of the Persian Empire. And then Greece is going to come in and defile the temple. And then Rome is going to come in and they're going to oppress us again. What latter glory? I'll tell you what latter glory. Jesus Christ came to that temple. 
That's the temple where Jesus would stand up and say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's the temple where Jesus would flip tables over and say, this is my father's house, a house of prayer. This is the temple where Peter and John would raise up the lame man and he would come leaping and dancing into the temple. This is where the veil would be torn in two. The latter glory was greater than the former, but I'll bet you they weren't thinking about that. They're sitting there staring at how small and ugly it is. God doesn't want you to wallow in the small things and complain. Well, I started reading my Bible, and I keep falling asleep. I'm trying to pray, and I can't pay attention for more than three minutes, three and a half, and I, I, I can't do it. Well, I tried to evangelize, but I'm scared to talk to anybody. Well, we planted this church, and it's been years, and there's hardly anybody coming. The days of small things. You know the only thing that matters, the Lord said in that passage in Haggai? He said, my spirit remains in your midst. If that's true, who cares? Who cares about the rest of this stuff? Who cares if this church grows by another single person? If the spirit is in our midst, that's all I'm concerned with. God doesn't want you to wallow in the small things. He wants you to move forward. Jacob's got a lot of stuff, but he's got no water, which is almost worse than having no stuff and no water. And the Lord shows up and says, hey, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. You might have a great heritage. And the Lord told Isaac, love your heritage. Learn from your heritage. Dig those old wells. But it might not work exactly the same way. The only thing that's going to make a difference is if the same God that was with them is with you. And that you have access to. Isn't that glorious to think about? When you pray and you hear the Holy Spirit speak into your heart, that same Holy Spirit was whispering to Amy Carmichael's heart. That same Holy Spirit is today speaking to great men and women around the world of Jesus Christ. That's the same spirit that was speaking to Hudson Taylor's heart when he's trying to take the gospel to China for the first time. The same spirit that spoke to Simon Peter's heart. That's the same. And if that's the same, well, the rest doesn't really matter, does it? The Lord doesn't want you to look back and say, look at that and celebrate it. Only, he says, let's go forward because I've got something planned for you. Ephesians 2.10, there are works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Lord's like, yeah, that was great, but guess what I've got for you? Your task is not just to do it the old way or to do it the new way or any of that. It's to learn to know God. Because then whatever situation, and you're on the right track. There was not a single person in the entire world that predicted the coronavirus coming in 2020. Not one. And then it came, and the only things that are going to remain when all this is finally shaken out are the ones that knew God. If it was all dependent upon a certain ministry model or doing it a certain way, it wouldn't have worked. But if Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit are there and God's being glorified, then you can get through it. The wells are filled up with mud, but God is with you. The temple looks bad, but the Lord of the temple is with us. So he says, work for I am with you. Keep digging wells, Isaac. Keep going forward, Christian. Isaac's situation had not improved, but God was with him. And that's what makes all the difference. Amen? So verse 26 now. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? <laughs> Seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Well, kind of stretching the truth there. But look at this at the end of verse 29. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Be'er Sheba to this day. Well, here comes Abimelech, the king. And he's got Phicol with him, the, king, the commander of his army. Phicol, by the way, is not a Semitic name, which lends credence to the idea that these were Greeks of some stripe or related to that because it's the kind of name you would hear from a Cretan or a Greek heritage, not from a Hebrew or Aramaic one. And this guy named Ahuzath, who was his advisor. So the king, the secretary of defense, and the secretary of state. And Isaac is concerned. What do you want? 
I finally left and you're following me. What do you want? Well, they want to make a peace treaty. Why? Because Isaac was still powerful and still rich. And even in the midst of all the harassment the devil had thrown his way, he had become powerful. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Isaac was a force to be reckoned with. Not because he was strong and rich and powerful, but because God was with him. They say, if this guy can keep going and keep being blessed and keep moving forward, God must be with him. I wonder if Isaac had been questioning that. I know God said I'm the blessed of the Lord, but I ain't seen a lot of blessing around here lately. And then they show up and he's like, what do you want to make a treaty with me for? I said, well, you're obviously blessed of the Lord and we really would rather be on your team. And we've always been friends, right? Don't you love that? Like, we sent you away in peace. He's like, yeah, kind of. So they, they cut a covenant, as it was said. Remember, they would cut the animals in half and spread them out, and they would walk through them. The conflict ends, and then they find water. He calls it Sheba, which means seven. It also can mean oath. Go back to chapter 20, and you'll see there was a story. There were seven, I believe there were ewe lambs that were given as a sign of the covenant. So seven, it also sounds like the name for oath. So well of the oath. Beersheba, or well of seven. And he names it Beersheba, which is what Abraham had named it before, but remember the wells had been stopped up. So it's probably a different well, but it's the same source of water that they had been able to access. So God brought Isaac to the same victory his father had had, but by a very different route. They both ended up with peace treaties with Abimelech and a well at Beersheba and many, many material blessings, but it happened differently. It was a harder path. It was a longer path. Why did it happen that way? Because he was not his father. Isaac was not Abraham. You are not your father. You're not your mother. We are not the church of a previous generation or a bygone era. Even Abimelech recognized, though, that God was with him, and that's what makes the difference. God is with you, too. Ephesians 3, 20-21 says, To him who is able to do far more abundantly, than all that we ask or think. Pause for a second. Saying God is able to do far more abundantly than anything you could ever ask or anything you could ever think. So anytime you've ever thought, I can't ask for that, it's too much. Paul says the Lord can do far more abundantly more than that. And we say amen. But what's the next phrase? According to the power at work within us. It's not just God's sovereign cosmic power from heaven. It's the power that's living in you. That's how God can do those incredible things. There is divine power at work in you. And God wants to lead you beyond your heritage. Every good father, grandfather, grandmother wants to see the next generation do better. Be more righteous, more faithful, more holy, more loving. And we face obstacles. Of course we do. Because times are always changing and the enemy is a harasser. But the Lord allows us to struggle. Why? You know that in Judges chapter 3, verse 2, it said that God left some nations in the promised land? Why would he do that? Said, so that the children who had not fought in Joshua's wars would learn how to fight. Because they've got to know how to make war. So I'm going to leave these guys here as practice for my people. Lord, why are you having me go through this? And God's like, because I want you to be strong. I want you to grow up. You do everything for your kids. They're not going to be able to do anything for themselves. Same thing with you and me. So the Lord says, I've got dynamic Holy Ghost power living within you. And you say, but Lord, I'm so weak. Yeah, isn't that good? Because 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, the Lord says, my power is made perfect in weakness. You're full of pride and you're swaggering around like we were talking earlier. You're going to get slapped down. The Lord's like, I'm not going to use that. And if he does, he won't use it for long. Romans 8.37 says we are more than conquerors if we stick with him. Isaac was trying to live up to his father's name. Hey, that's a good goal. But he also was stuck doing things the same way his dad had and maybe fretting that it wasn't working for him. And the Lord had to remind him and remind you and me, it's not about doing things the way dad did them. It's about knowing who dad knew. And that's what's going to make the difference. At the beginning, I referenced King Theoden from the Lord of the Rings. He said, I am a lesser son of greater sires. And we feel that way sometimes. Like, I'm no Abraham. Maybe I'm Isaac. But actually, I'm probably 
one of those names at the bottom of the genealogy that everybody forgets, and the spiritual runt of the litter. But as I said, he's one of my favorite characters in literature because at the end of the story, he leads his army, which is tiny, in a hopeless charge against an enormous force of evil. There's a siege against the city, and they're going to try to break it, and they know that they can't do it. And they charge down the hill anyway. And in that battle, not only do they turn the tide of the battle, he slays a giant monster, but he dies in the attempt. But I love his last words in the book. He says, my body is broken, I go to my father's, and even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. He started out by saying, I can't live up to that. I'm nobody. I'm the lesser son. I'm nobody. I'm Isaac. I'm not Abraham. And he couldn't do the things those guys did, but he did what was right in front of him. And so he says, now I don't have to be ashamed. And y'all, that's all God asks of you. He's not asking you to do it like they did it. He's asking you to do what's right in front of you to the best of your ability by his Holy Spirit. And that is doable. The enemy, though, he's an accuser, isn't he? The enemy loves to accuse. He accuses you to God. He goes in and says, that man doesn't really love you. She's only serving you because of the blessings she gets. If she wasn't married to that man, she'd leave you in an instant, Lord. He accuses you to other people. They're sitting there having negative thoughts about you that make no sense because the enemy is accusing you. But you know what he does? That's the worst of all. He accuses you to yourself that you're no good. God doesn't really love you. You really think you're going to make it to heaven after all you've done? Yeah, that might be true for Pastor Tyler. That might be true for him or her. It might be true for this famous Christian. That's not for you. You know what you've done. God knows what you've done, and you're going to be cast out. You've committed the unforgivable sin. I can't believe how many Christians believe that they've committed the unforgivable sin. It's in, it's in like half a verse of Scripture. And yet the enemy blows it up in our minds to convince us that we've somehow outran the love of God. You're worthless. You're inferior. You're damaged goods. You'll never be like him. You'll never live up to her reputation. But you don't want to be like those who went before. You want to know their same God. You say, no, I'm not. I'm not him. I'm a pastor. I stand up in this pulpit. Some days I come home and I go, what was that? And I, I have been reading biographies or I've been reading some commentary of Charles Spurgeon or Leonard Ravenhill or Martin Lloyd-Jones or somebody's just pulpit masters, you know, or I'll listen to a Tony Evans message and swear I'm never preaching again after hearing that because I can never do that. And I, and I get up here and I feel like I just laid an egg on the stage. I'm like, Lord, what, what am I doing? God's like, well, I didn't call you to be them. I picked you to do you. I picked Tyler to do Tyler things. <laughs> Put your name in there. It's like, I didn't pick Isaac to be Abraham part two. I picked Isaac to be Isaac and do Isaac things. You'll never be like them. Yeah, well, I don't want to be like them, Satan. I just want to know the same God that they knew. If you draw near to Jesus, you'll find that you might be afraid, but you can step out and walk on the water. And it's important that I finish that passage that we read at the beginning today, where I said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's hard to do if you don't do verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't just look to their example. Look to Jesus. You don't tune guitars to each other. You tune them to a tuner. You tune them to a tuning fork if you're old school. You tune them to the, to the standard that's in the middle that they all can come around because if you try to tune them to each other, they're going to get more and more off until guitar number 10 isn't even anywhere close to guitar number 1. The times are different anyway. Oh, I love the story of Athanasius, but I'm not living in Athanasius' day or Martin Luther's day. You are different. But you know what Hebrews 13.8 says? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's where your focus ought to be. So we're going to look to the examples of those who've gone before. We're going to treasure their memory, but we're going to try to be new wineskins, aren't we? This is not scripture, but Tennyson said in one of his famous poems, that which we are, we are. Sometimes it's all we can say. I am what I am, said Popeye. <laughs> you can't change that. That which we are, we are. And God doesn't want you to. 
God wants you to meet him and see what he can make of your life. My life isn't special, but he is. And the Lord can do amazing things through you, and he wants to. So I'm going to end with a psalm, or a song that we've heard sung before. It's all about the, those who have gone before and the Lord given us grace to live up to their example. And I think now that we've looked at this in a little more detail, recognizing how to do that and how not to do that, it'll mean something to us. It says, A noble army, men and boys, the matron and the maid, around the Savior's throne rejoice in robes of light arrayed. They climbed the steep ascent of heaven through peril, toil, and pain. O God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. Because Christian, it's not about effort, it's not about strength, it's about the grace of God at work through you.